Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 4, the first letter of the Apostle John. It's page 1902 in your pew Bibles, 1902. We're going to read the verses 7 through 21. We could almost read just about anywhere from 1 John, even any of the letters of John. John is called the Apostle of Love, and for good reason. But we'll focus our attention on the verses 7 through 21 as we prepare to listen to what it is that Paul enjoins upon us, what he commands us to do in Romans 12, verse 10a. So 1 John 4, verse 7, hear the word of God. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. And in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Then we'll turn to Romans 12, verse 10, verse 10a, as we continue our series in Romans 12, this time having heard already that love must be sincere, that we must hate what is evil, cling to what is good, we now hear what the Apostle says in Romans 12, verse 10a. We'll read the whole verse, and that way we have in mind also what we'll be studying next, Lord's Supper. So verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. So this day we're going to consider be devoted to one another in brotherly love. May the Lord add His blessing to this word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, maybe you've heard it said that blood is thicker than than water. And that means, of course, that the blood that unites us biologically, that flows in all of our veins as genetic families, is thicker than any other bond in this world. And we experience this, I think, in, in many different ways. People we hardly know can make a mistake and we judge them rapidly and quickly without too much difficulty. But when it's a family member, when it's somebody close to us that we love, we say things, well, yes, they made a mistake, but they were a good person. And yet you don't be too quick to judge. They were having a bad day. 
we treat those closest to us with a greater sensitivity and compassion than we do those farther away from us. We treat those that are in our blood circle more favorably than those outside of it. And why is that? Is it possible that we instinctively recognize that family is ours and we are theirs? We're bound together in this unbreakable bond. I mean, it can stretch, of course. It can stretch a long way. But we're always and forever family. But we're not always and forever friends. We're not always neighbors. We're not always co-workers. That bond can break and can rejoin in other ways. Those relationships can stretch to snapping or can simply die away from misuse. But family is family. Family is, in a lot of ways, our touchstone, our rock, our foundation, our point of reference. It's who we are. And we know it because of the family we belong to, the parents that raised us, the genetics that flow through our bodies. So when someone criticizes my family, they're criticizing me, and that makes it personal because it's family. Even our world knows this. Miranda Lampert sings about the house that built her. Bon Jovi sings about going home and for the Older generation among us, Sister Sledge, you'll remember saying about how we are family. And there are endless numbers of studies that have taught us that the benefit of strong and stable families on our emotional and uh, mental development is, is, is remarkable. We, we know the importance of family. It isn't news to us. We certainly as a community understand That blood is thicker than water. But of course, that's not an easy thing to acknowledge for everyone, is it? I mean, after all, not everybody here with us today has family that are close by. Their bonds may be stretched permanently in such a way that, yes, we can communicate and we have lovely ways of communicating now, with family that are distant from us. But it's not the same, is it, as having them close by. Sometimes we feel alone, even when we're surrounded by so many people. Alone because we don't have family. Or maybe we feel alone because our family's quite messed up. As foster parents, we can certainly attest to the fact that in our world, there are a lot of very profoundly broken families. And what then? What then of these families? What then of these children? And, and this notion that blood is thicker than water. Are these exceptions that prove the rule? Are these illustrations of the problem with the rule? Do they leave us with the desperate need to be loved by our biological family? Working a deep sense within us that anything less would be troubling? Or do these exceptions, these illustrations of the problem of this thinking demonstrate that we need something better. Think of our world and its brokenness as you answer this question. Should we live by the adage that blood is thicker than water? Well, what does Paul say? Paul says to us today, be devoted to one another in brotherly 
love. Now we need to start by identifying the one another of whom here Paul speaks. This is in a sense the first time in this section that he has brought this up. In verse 9, he said simply that love must be sincere, that you ought to hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Those are things that you do as an individual. But now he says be devoted to one another. And in a moment next month, we'll hear him say honor one another above yourselves. That that language of one another adds a wrinkle, adds a, a new dynamic to his instruction to us. So, who are the one another of whom here Paul speaks? Now, the simple answer, of course, is the original readers of Paul's letter. Paul's written this to a very specific congregation. It, he wanted it read to them. You might even, they might even read it in a service like this where they would have read through Paul's letter almost like a sermon to the congregation. And when then he said to them, be devoted to one another, they immediately understood what that meant. That meant their congregation. But, but why? Why should they be devoted to one another in that sense? What was it that made them a group that had some bond, some connection among them? Was it their ethnicity? Were they all taken from a particular ethnic group? Were they a people that were defined by their relationships in blood? Were they a large extended family? Were they people simply with the same priorities and practices, their same cultural perspective? What united this congregation as a body in the eyes of Paul? Well, Paul tells us at the very beginning of his letter when he writes to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Which is to say, in short, that Paul looks at the church not in terms of the earthly bonds that might unite us, business relationships, friendships, uh, communities in which we live. He sees instead the congregation defined by this, that they are united in Christ by faith, and so to each other in Christ as well. That is to say that a branch on a tree may be significantly distant. If you think of some of these large trees that that have grown for hundreds of years, a branch at the top may be 30 feet from a branch at the bottom. It may be distant from it. It may be closer in many respects to the tree beside it than to the branch at the bottom of of, of the tree. But because they are connected to the same bowl, because they are connected to the same trunk, Because they're part of the same tree, they are united as one tree. All the branches of one tree belong to each other, Paul says, because they're united in Christ. Now this, of course, does not mean that we are to eliminate anything about the call to love all men. Paul did say love must be sincere. But now Paul's not talking about the love that we are to show to all men. He's not talking about the love that we are to show to our enemies. No, he has a very specific focus in mind as a congregation now. You're loving the world. Good. You're loving your enemies. That's difficult. But now let's talk about how you love each other. Those who are united by faith, bound to each other by the work of the Holy Spirit. This better, this more permanent family. Oh yes, Paul has here the language of family very much in mind. He sees the church 
as a family. In our current culture, it has become clear that biology is insufficient to describe family. We think of family as a stable community, as those people that are related to us. But in our society, related now by blood for the most part, but our society understands that cannot be. We live in a time of blended families, of step-siblings and step-parents. And truth be told, it's really always been that way, hasn't it? For the brokenness of our world has pressed upon the church and upon the community, the world in which we live, in so many ways. It wasn't that long ago that our grandmothers, maybe our great-grandmothers, may have lost their life in the birthing of a child, and then the father remarries, and now we have a stepmother and a stepbrother or sister. So that even even if we look back upon our own history, we can understand that biology isn't enough to describe what binds us together as a family. And that's especially true when we start to think in terms of adoption and how it is that the Lord brings into our lives children that are not bound to us biologically, but are bound to us nonetheless. For we love them and they love us and we call them family and they call us as well. How do we describe, how do we understand this different perspective on family? Well, we ought to understand that family has always been defined in bigger terms than just blood. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, because there you already meet two families. God says he will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman the children of the serpent, and the children of the woman. He says there are two families. Think of Jesus' language in John 8, verse 44, where he declares to the Jews with whom he was speaking that their, their father was the devil. That's language of family. But language that cannot be explained in terms of biology. Jesus sees a deeper, a more profound bond uniting the people to whom he was speaking and the devil. A more spiritual bond, a more permanent bond, one that can be only broken by God's grace. When we see this, when we realize that the bonds that unite us are deeper and more profound than just biology, when we see that there are really just two families in this world, the family of faith and the family of sin, then we begin to understand how it is that Paul can look at the church in in Rome and say, but you are all a family. Yes, you were born into the family of sin but you have been purchased and redeemed into the family of faith. The family of sin is defined by that blood of Adam, the rebellious son, that flows through our veins. But the family of faith is defined by the blood that was shed shed for us upon the cross. And that bond, that bond of faith, is far more permanent than any other bond that exists. Because that bond is eternal. That bond survives even death. The bond that unites us as family and friends doesn't always survive the challenges of this life. But the bond of faith can never be broken 
Now, that doesn't mean that biological families aren't important. That doesn't mean that these other relationships we have with people aren't important. They're very important. They're just not ultimate. The ultimate family, the way that we need to see life is to see that the ultimate family we have is the family of faith. The bonds that unite us biologically can break, but the bond that unites us in Christ never can. And that's a hard thing for us as a congregation, for our particular congregation, to remember because we have such strong families, we have such strong connections with our parents and our grandparents and our cousins and our, we're all, we, you, when strangers, when new people, when, when, when there are people that come into our fellowship, they notice this immediately. That we, we have this web of relations that is so strong and so bounded, so complete. We know who's related to who and who does what and where. We even know who's angry with who from 30 years ago. We know all the relationships that exist within our congregation. And we can imagine that those are the real relationships that define us. We can look at that brother or sister across the way and say, but they're a part of a different web of people. They're, they're not really mine. They're, they're, somebody else will take care of them. We need to see that the word family, when viewed from the perspective of Christ, needs to be bigger than just the people we're related to. In fact, it needs to be more important that we're related by faith than that we're related by anything else. Family needs to be understood by us, above all else, as being united in Christ. That is the one another of whom Paul speaks. And what he calls the church to do now is to love one another. If family should be seen primarily through the lens of our union with Christ, then how should we treat this family? Well, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's actually a a more literal translation here that doesn't make any sense in English, I understand, but it does illustrate at least something. It says, uh, Paul literally says, the brotherly love to one another with brotherly affection. Now, it's sort of missing a verb. You, you go, the brotherly love, what, what, what do we do with this brotherly love? Well, you have to show it, I suppose, so we can add that verb. The brotherly love you have to show to one another, show it with brotherly affection, says Paul. That brotherly love, first of all, that binding commitment, that devotion, that's what love speaks of. It speaks of devotion to another. That's what love is for the believer, for the Christian church. That's what makes love so unique. Think about it just in the way that it expresses itself in our families. Why do we love our family members the way that we do? We love them persistently because we have this relationship with them. Not pretending that our choice is the defining defining factor in our relationship, but recognizing that they belong to us and we belong to them and there's nothing we can do about it. Our social circle, even our spouse, is someone we can choose, but our family we cannot choose. So we're stuck with them. And being stuck with them, we get over it. We start loving them because there's nothing else you can do. Well, Paul says, love each other the same way. Don't see your relationship as church as incidental, as irrelevant, as insignificant. You have to persistently love each other. And you have to do that graciously. 
The truth is, as families, we overlook the family faults within our own fellowship with some ease. That's not always good, by the way. Love also speaks the truth. And we need to be able to say the truth to one another and call each other to genuine repentance and faith. To not do that isn't very loving. But the truth is that with our family, we tend to be more gracious, more compassionate, more easily willing to overlook flaws. Well, Surely we ought to translate that into the congregation as well. Not only should we be loving each other persistently, we should be loving each other graciously. We should be loving each other in a way that overlooks failures, but still is willing to speak the truth in love. And we ought to love each other practically. Look, in our own families, we know that we have to help each other out. We have to watch each other's kids. We have to help each other move. When times are tough, we go and sit and and pray with family. We go and sit and grieve with families. When we have parties and celebrations, birthdays and anniversaries, we come together to celebrate. Why? Because they're family, because that's what you do. There are these practical consequences to our love for each other. And if we're going to love each other with this brotherly love, with this love of a family, then we ought to love each other practically as well. Even as we should be willing to acknowledge that we love each other falteringly. The truth is we mess up and get angry when we shouldn't. We say what we shouldn't. We don't always treat each other with the respect that we deserve, but eventually we come back together, don't we? We We apologize. We let bygones be bygones and we find each other again. That's what we do in families and that's what we ought to do in the church as well. The bond, the love that we show to family, and that's really the brotherly love term is a word that describes love for family. The love that we give to our family is persistent. It is gracious. It is practical even as it is faltering. And Paul says that love you ought to show to each other with brotherly affection. Now that's a tough addition to the word to brotherly love. It's bad enough that we've got to love each other this way. Persistently, graciously, practically, falteringly. Now Paul says not only do you have to do that, you have to love each other in a warm way. In in an all-embracive way. Not in some technical, not in some legalistic way. In a genuinely affectionate way. Way. You can never say of your brother or sister in the church, oh, I love them, I just don't like them. You can't say that about anybody, but you certainly can't say that about the church. You can't say, I love him, I just don't like him. Paul says that's not allowed. If you're going to love your brother or sister in the church, you're going to love them with brotherly affection. And that means warmly, that means compassionately, that means with a sense of, of, of genuine affection for the person to whom you're ministering. And that's not easy, to be sure, for any of us. But what we ought to understand is that brotherly affection, how kind we are to other people, is not a reflection of other people. We think that. We say, I don't have to be nice to that person because they're rude, they're disrespectful, they're whatever. I don't have to give that. Why should I give them? They have never done anything for me. We can be miserable people all the time pointing the finger at others. But the truth is, our miserableness is merely a reflection of our own character. If we don't love with brotherly affection, 
It's because we have a problem, not anyone else. We do it, ultimately, don't we, with people we like. We do it with our spouses, our children, our close friends. We show them an affection that we may not show others. But why can't we do that with brothers and sisters of the faith? Why can't we do that as a congregation? Why are there people in the church we just don't like? That illustrates a problem in our hearts and no one else's. That illustrates a selfishness, a pride, a failure to truly work out the gospel genuinely. After all, if Jesus Christ has died for them, then who are we to say, I don't like Him? If Christ can love Him, and if Christ's Spirit dwells in us, then shouldn't we love them too? So you see, this call to love one another with brotherly affection is first of all a way of looking at ourselves and asking some tough questions about our own hearts. Am I genuinely amazed at God's grace in Jesus Christ to me? And am I genuinely desirous of expressing that to others? Am I willing to love with a brotherly affection those that the Lord has placed upon my path within the church? Am I willing to serve them? And then second, instead of dismissing them as those people over there with whom I don't have a relationship, shouldn't we instead as a congregation and as individuals try to find concrete ways of showing our affection to all of God's people with whom we have a relationship in Christ? Here I'm thinking, for example, of weddings or of funerals and visitations. Here I'm thinking of birthdays, of cards, of meals to those that are in need, of visits, of of helping out driving someone to do groceries, driving someone to go to the doctor. I mean, on and on you can go thinking about the many ways in which you can minister to someone else in our congregation. There are people that need their children watched for an afternoon, sometimes just so that mom can have a nap. There are people that need a meal, not because... They're in such a terrible place, but because they need the encouragement from God's people lifting them up. We need to find in our hearts practical, concrete ways to say, I love you. Not because of who you are, first of all, but because of who I am in Jesus Christ. And because Christ has made you a brother or a sister in this congregation with me. And therefore, you know what? We may not have a natural relationship. We may not be on the same page on anything. We may not normally have gotten along anywhere. But here's the thing. Christ has united us together. And if He wants us to live in fellowship with each other, what can I do to help you? How can I serve and minister to you? That's what it means to be devoted to one another in brotherly affection. And the reason we do that is because Christ has done it first. This is the pattern of Christ, isn't it? We certainly don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His ministry. We don't deserve His death and resurrection. We don't deserve this table before us. Why did He love us this way? Why is He so patient with you and with me? Why is He so tender and persistent? Why is He so insistent in His ministry? Why is He so practical in His love for us? It is ultimately, isn't it, because of who He is. He's the Son of God in the flesh. He's the Messiah, the Redeemer of His people, the One who is committed to loving this ragtag, broken, ugly group of people. 
We look good today, but in the eyes of Christ, He knows the truth, and He still loves us. Yet it's more than just patterning patterning our lives after Christ's brotherly love for us. It's accepting and acknowledging that His blood unites us. To disregard a brother or sister in the faith is to dismiss them as unworthy of not just our affection, affection, but to essentially tell Jesus that He made a mistake when He redeemed them. When we are unkind to our fellow believers in the church, we are saying to Jesus, you're wrong. You shouldn't have bought this one. Now again, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that we'll never deal with tough stuff. This doesn't mean that we get to allow our fellow believers to mistreat us endlessly and just take it. But we ought to see our relationship with each other, first of all, in the light of what Christ has done, rather than in the light of what we want, expect, or demand. And imagine what would happen in our world, in our broken world, where relationships are splintering and breaking, where relationships are redefined in all sorts of ways, where the bonds that unite people have become so remarkably broken. Imagine what would happen if they saw within us a community, not of dishonesty, not of denial, not of pretending that we're some glorious, perfect, wonderful group of people that never make mistakes, But what if they saw a community that loved each other no matter what? Wouldn't that testify to the uniqueness of the church? Wouldn't that testify to the power of Jesus Christ? In a world of broken and breaking bonds, the church should be a community where broken sinners can find community, can find love, can find family. Whatever the challenges they bring, into this fellowship. So in the end, blood is thicker than water. But not the way you think. Because that statement, that motto, that phrase is actually misquoted. The original quote goes like this. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, that we are united permanently and eternally with brothers and sisters in the faith. Help us to reorient our lives, grateful, of course, Lord, for stable homes, for loving families, for fellow believers who are also brothers and sisters biologically. But help us to see it's not biology that unites us. It's Jesus Christ. And help us to show that love to your people by graciousness, by practical and persistent expressions of love. Help us to be a light to our world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.